Lord, you invite us to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. That's a great invitation. As we're gathered here tonight, every one of us has cares. Every one of us has burdens. Every one of us have weights. Uh, <clears throat> Paul said he had conflicts with uh, conflicts within, fears without. Um, life is not easy. It's full of challenges. That's why we get anxious. Um, we're trying to do our jobs. We're trying to be responsible. We're trying to meet deadlines. We're trying to do this. We're trying to do that. A lot of cares. A lot of responsibility. It weighs us down. We get worn out. Uh, we get fatigued. We don't get enough sleep. Sometimes the burdens are so great, the anxiety is so great, we can't sleep. And we get into a vicious cycle. We thank you that you're always there. We, we thank you that you don't need to sleep. You give to your beloved even in their sleep. We are grateful that you never get weary. You never get tired. You never nod off. You never get overwhelmed. You never run out of gas. You never get discouraged. You never puzzled what's going to happen next week. Now that's us, it's not you. And you invite us to cast all of our care upon you, the God who made us, the God who brought the gospel to us, the God who sustains us, the God who keeps us going. Um, you ask us to give everything that burdens us to you. But then, Lord, there's a matter of trusting you with outcomes. And, and so often we get into anxious moments and they multiply and we start trying to figure out how it's going to sort out. And we start tr trying to come up with a game plan on how it'll work and this and that. And what if that happens or what if that doesn't happen? But the whole time, you're in control and you're in charge and you're watching over our lives. The psalmist said in Psalm 142, when my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. Now, that's a verse that will calm us down. That's a verse that will enable us to trust. We don't have a clue. We're carrying all these weights, all these burdens. We're not, we don't know how this is going to work. We're not sure. We don't see a way that that will work. And it's just overwhelming. But even when we're overwhelmed, you know our path. And the other... 
portion of Psalms, what is it? 138, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. Not, not didn't say he might, he will. He will. So we cast all our care upon you. We trust our lives to you. We trust the timing to you. We trust the outcome to you. We believe your word. Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Settle our hearts with these words. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in Ephesians 5. Tonight we're moving into Ephesians 6. We uh, are doing the study called Landmines. And specifically in this study we've been doing, and I'll just make this very, very brief, but we've been in 515 and 16 and 17, and I'll let you read that for yourselves. But basically what he's saying is that we need to be careful how we walk uh, because the days are evil. And this is why you don't want to be drunk with wine because when you're drunk with wine, you can't walk carefully and you make bad choices. Uh, and then he immediately goes into our homes, begins to deal with uh, our family relationships. And he spends a lot of, a lot of verses on family relationships. Um, he talks to wives, then he talks to husbands. You get into six, and he addresses children, and then in verse four, he addresses fathers. <clears throat> there are two landmines that fathers have to be aware of. The first landmine is the landmine of distance. Distance. I think it was Samuel Olsherson who said, the curse of fatherhood is distance, and the good fathers spend their lives trying to overcome it. Um, it is so easy to get distant from our children. Now, I need to say something here contextually about fathers. When the scripture is addressing fathers, it really is addressing fathers and grandfathers. In Deuteronomy 6, they're getting ready. You know, they were in slavery for over 400 years in Egypt. Then they had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness because of the unbelief of 10 out of the 12 spies. Um, and they're finally going to go into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses says, now this is the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has given me to teach you so that you might do them in the land which you are going over to possess so that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear the Lord. So in Scripture, when we talk about fathering, Grandfathers are in on this stuff. You should know that. 
Uh, to be a grandfather, it's different to be a grandfather. Um, the noon study today, one of the guys was there and introduced us. He had his, uh, he, he uh, there was a young guy with him. And he said, yeah, this, uh, this is my daughter's fiance. And so I said, okay, man, I'm honing in on you today. <laughs> and just having a little fun way. And uh, 24 years old, about to get married. Well, I remember when I was 24. I wasn't married. But when I was 34, I had two kids. And I had one on the way. Uh, I'm not 34 anymore. Uh, I'm 38. <laughs> Each of my legs is 38. Now, I'm 67. So now I've got adult kids, and I've got four little grandkids. See, life changes. Uh, when you're a grandfather, you're kind of you're the wingman. You know, the dad is responsible, but you're there, and you're going to spend some time with those kids, and you're a backup, and you're a support, and an encouragement, and it's a little different position, but man, is it ever strategic. It's huge. I remember when we, um, we lived in California, and we moved to Little Rock, and we were back, oh, I don't know, the next spring, for spring break, and my mom and dad had a condo right on the San Francisco Bay, about just, you know, a quarter of a mile from there. And my dad would uh, get his, he had a bike, and he'd go out and cycle, and go out in the pier and come back, and, you know, he had his regiment. And, uh, and he bought a bike for my mom, but she never went. And so we'd been there about a day or two, and Rachel, who was maybe, I don't know, I'm going to guess nine, uh, she said, hey, Papa, can I go on your bike ride tomorrow? He said, sure. And so she got up early and rode my mom's bike, and they're gone for like 45 minutes an hour. And we were doing it for four or five days. And then we were going to go to Yosemite because we'd lived in California all of our lives and never been to Yosemite. Sort of like people in Arizona who've never been to the Grand Canyon. Because, you know, you, know, you can always go if you want. And so that one night, I said, okay, kids, we're getting up early in the morning, we're going to head. And Rachel said, and she was real serious, she said, Daddy, I can't go on the trip to Yosemite. I, I, I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, I, I don't want to miss my bike rides with Papa. There you go. You see? That was special time. That was a very special time for her. You get it. You get it, sure you do. Some of you guys are there in life. Um, this passage, Ephesians 6, 4, years ago I wrote a chapter in my book, Point Men, on this, and I called it Save the Boys. If I were writing that chapter now, I would title it Save the Boys and Don't Forget Your Girls, if you have girls. I've got two sons and a daughter. Um, Ephesians 6, 4, there are two landmines that fathers have to be aware of. Uh, the first one is distance. 
the second one is distraction. Distraction. Um, uh, when it comes to distance, you can be phys physically present, but emotionally distant. Is that not true? We've all done that. When it comes to distraction, well, you know what I think of? I think of the, uh, the Ed Sullivan show. And now, uh, if you're young, you, you know what's great about the, the age in which we live in. You can go type in Ed Sullivan on YouTube. And what I'm going to tell you is going to come up. And you need to watch this. Because there used to be, he had all these, you know, singers and, and these vaudeville, old vaudeville guys that they had one act. And they lived off this act for like 60 years. But he'd have a guy, and this guy's whole, his whole gig, he had sticks and dishes. That's all this guy had. This was it. He traveled the world with sticks and dishes. And he had a table, and it looked like, he, they almost looked like pool cues. And he must have had, I, wanna say, I don't want to exaggerate, he had at least 12. He might have had 15. And he had a real long table. And what he would do, he'd take a stick and he'd put a dish on it. And then he'd go like this and go like this and get that sucker spinning. Then he'd go to the second one and make Third one. And now you got a wide angle shot on this guy. And by the time he gets to about number eight, and he's got 12 or 13 or 14, by the time he gets to eight, you can see one. Now he's very focused on what you're doing, you know? But one, that plate is starting to do this. And you're going, hey, hey, hey. And all of a sudden, he looks at him, and he's back to one. <laughs> and then he's got two. And then he's back, he's trying to get him going again. He's got four more he hasn't touched yet. And it was exhausting <laughs> to watch this guy. That's fathering. Is it not? That's fathering. You got all these sticks. And you got to keep all these plates going. You got work, and you got responsibilities at work. You got reports. You got a boss. You, you got uh, expense uh, things you got to fill out. You got this. You got that. You got to do planning. You got staff meeting. And, and then you have a wife. And you got to talk to her, and she's got needs and all of this. And then you got kids. And each one of them, they're either going through something or they at school, or you got to show up in a meeting at school. Then there's, you got to drive around to ball games and all this, and it's just all these plates, and you're just distracted. Right? So there are two landmines. First landmine for fathers is distance, second one is distractions. Now, in this passage in Ephesians 6 4, there are four things. They're not landmines, they're um, what I would call landmarks that help keep you balanced and keep you in check and keep you effective. Four landmarks. Let me go ahead and give them to you and then we'll work our way through them. The first one is this. Let's read the text. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Very short verse. It's, uh, it's power-packed. The first landmark in that verse is fathers should raise their children fairly. Fairly. I'll come back to it. 
Secondly, fathers are to raise their children tenderly. Tenderly. Third, fathers are to raise their children firmly. Fourth, fathers are to raise their children in the Lord. Let's go to number one. Fathers should raise their children fairly. There's a parallel verse in Colossians. Just flip over a couple pages. You'll see Colossians. Colossians is sort of a uh, cliff note version, if you will, of this section in Ephesians. If you look at um, um, Colossians 3, in verse 18, kind of follows the same pattern. It talks in 3.18, it talks to wives. 19, it talks to husbands. In 20, it talks to children. And then in 21, here's the fathers. Fathers, it says here, do not exasperate your children so that they will, new, new, they will not lose heart. When it says exasperate your children, don't exasperate the, ch the children. Do not continually frustrate them. That's what that means. Because when someone is continually frustrated, they lose heart. You ever, did you ever play for a coach and you couldn't please him? Man, that's frustrating. You just can't seem to get it right. You ever have a teacher and you just can't seem, whatever you do, whatever assignment you type, you hand in, you work on it, you do this, it's just red all over. That's frustrating. And what happens is at a certain point, you just give up. You're trying. You're really trying. I saw this happen to one of my kids. They were really, really trying on their grades. Really, really trying. And they were shooting for a certain goal. And they poured everything they had into it. And they came up just a little bit short. And they pretty much lost heart from then on out. That wasn't all of my kids. It was one of them. Go back to 6.4. When it says, fathers, um, do not provoke your children to anger. I read an article recently by David Pallison, P-O-W-L-I-S-O-N, Christian counselor out of Pennsylvania. He does good stuff. Best article I'd ever seen on anger. And basically what he was saying is, is that anger, when you get angry, really what you're saying is, this isn't right. And he's right about that. You get angry because something's not right. Whatever it is, this should not be this way, and you get angry. And there are different levels of that. But you see, what it is, it's some kind of injustice. So this says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. There are all kinds of ways that fathers can do this. I mean, we could, I mean, we sit here for two days and talk about how you can provoke your children to anger. Uh, every guy in this room, you know, you got a family history. And different things uh, to this day push your buttons because of how you were raised. And they make you very, very angry. Same with your wife, because of how you were raised. Uh, and then, you know, we grow up saying, saying, I'll never do that. I'll never do that. And, and you probably make a real, yeah, and you probably don't. You don't want to make that error. You'll just make a bunch of other errors. Because all, we've all got our blind spots. We're going to make errors. 
Let's list a couple of ways that fathers can provoke their children to anger and uh, absolutely frustrate them so that they lose heart. Uh, one way would be my, by neglect. Another way would be by constant criticism and critique. Uh, another way would be by favoritism. You think of Joseph's family. Uh, his brothers hated his guts. Uh, why? Because Joseph was his dad's favorite. I mean, he got Joseph that coat from L.O. Bean, mail order. He didn't get the other guy's one. That Christmas, that ticked them off. He was clearly their father's favorite. Yeah. Uh, you can provoke a kid to anger by overprotection, by smothering them, or by having a plan for their life, or by trying to relive uh, your athletic career, which was so frustrating, through your hopes and dreams for your son. And he better perform. And you've seen the dads who do that. And they act like four-year-olds out on that field. There's no sense of fun. There's no sense of having a good time because that dad is trying to relive his frustrated life through that boy. You see? We've all seen it. There's a guy named Mez McConnell. He's a pastor in Scotland. I became familiar with him several years ago. First name is Mez, M-E-Z. Um, last name McConnell, M-C. C-O-N-N-E-L-L. -L. Now, this is, this is a video that's worth watching. If you put in Ms. McConnell video or Ms. McConnell testimony, he's got about an eight-minute clip that is so powerful. Scotland used to be the most Christian nation on the face of the earth. Uh, John Knox the Reformation that took place there, the, the remarkable things that happened in Scotland. So here's, I'll quote from this a little later. Here's a short biography on John Knox, who God used to do marvelous things in the nation of Scotland, man of God. Um, uh, here's a book called How the Scots Invented the Modern World. And they pretty much did when you read this. And uh, it, it was the most Christian country in the world. Eric Liddell came out of Scotland. Great men of God. John Witherspoon came out of Scotland. Uh, John Witherspoon was greatly influenced by John Knox. He came, uh, was president of Princeton. Uh, through his um, discipleship, there were more guys, signers of the Constitution, more college graduates at the Continental Congress out of Princeton than any other school. Harvard had like two. Uh, he was committed to Christ. They were committed to Christ. James Madison was discipled by Witherspoon. This man had an incredible impact. All these guys came out of Scotland. Then you had the great industrialist. I can't tell you the book, but it was a Christian nation. Uh, Scotland today is um, it's beautiful, but they figure that just a little over 2% of the people in Scotland 
have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's pretty much burned over on Christianity. Uh, Ms. McConnell is a pastor. And he is a pastor and he has a strategy because they have what we would call in the inner city in America, we have the projects, the government housing, a lot of bad stuff goes on there because you got fatherlessness, you got a lot of crime, you got a lot of drugs, you got a lot of shootings, you got a lot of knifings, you got a lot of, well, in, in Scotland, they have the same thing, only they don't call it the projects, they call it the schemes, S-C-H-E-M-E-S. And Ms. McConnell, who Christ has gotten a hold of, has a ministry and they are targeting the 12 most impoverished schemes, housing projects with the highest crime rate in Scotland with the gospel and they're planning churches. It's tough work because it's tough people. Um, so I've gotten, I'm watching this guy a little bit, Mez McConnell. He has a horrible background. His grandfather committed suicide. Uh, his father and mother divorced when he was very small. Then his um, father abandoned him. Then his mother abandoned him. Uh, he was in and out of orphanages. Um, then his dad showed up again, got him and his sister. Uh, they moved to England. Uh, he was a tough kid. One of his buddies was stabbed. They were in a bar fight, and one of his buddies got stabbed, and he saw him bleed out. Then several years later, uh, he stabbed a couple of guys, wound up in prison. Um, in the middle of all this, his dad took off again for like 13 years and really left them with his girlfriend, quote unquote, stepmother. Um, you talk about a rough life. So in 2015, he writes this blog post called Ding Dong, the Wicked Witch is Dead. A pastor's response to the death of his childhood abuser. Um, I just heard several hours ago, this is from Ms. McConnell. I just heard several hours ago that my stepmother of almost 13 years is dead. Um, he says this, I should have read this earlier and talking about when this stepmother, this girlfriend took care of them. He said, abandoned by my mother, I was often clueless about my father's whereabouts for 13 years. While his girlfriend, a cruel, angry, and violent woman looked after us. She wasn't nice and would get angry with us kids and hit us. She'd get angry a lot. Well, here he goes in the detail. I just heard several year, uh, hours ago that my stepmother of almost 13 years is dead. Of what and how, I do not know. She was young, I know that. So painful it is to even think of her name. I refer to her as she throughout my autobiography. Wouldn't even call her by name. It's 1.30 a.m., I can't sleep. I don't know what to think or feel. Um, I'd like to go to her funeral and stand up and let everyone know what this person was really like and how much damage she did while she was alive. Uh, I want her to get her just desserts, even though I know, thanks to Christ, I will never get my own. I'm a pastor. I should know better. I do know better. I know deep in my soul that Jesus experienced every form of suffering when he was in the world. He was despised and rejected by men. Jesus was betrayed and tortured. I know, therefore, that 
Perceived wisdom, my own included, demands that I forgive this woman who caused me such pain because Jesus has forgiven me. I know all of this, yet I want to make public my frustration towards crime she never paid for. At the same time, I want to be magnanimous in my forgiveness as Christ has been in his sin in, in, for me, for my sin. He died for my sin. I, I, I am conflicted. You can imagine this. I thought I might dance a little jig or even feel a sense of release and elation at news I long dreamed about and ached for as a kid that she was dead. This is a woman who drove me to such despair that I attempted to set her on fire in her drunken sleep when I was no more than 10 years old. Now that's pretty bad. You, you, you talk about utter frustration so that a child would lose hope. Um, but there is no jig in my heart tonight. There is just a heaviness of heart and the nagging itch of my suffering and her evil that's never been admitted in this life. The problem is I want to feel joy at her passing. I want to rejoice in the belief that she will face the judge of the, all the earth for her crimes against me. I want to revel in the thought that she is having her own spiritual Nuremberg moment right now. But I don't feel the joy that I want to. I just feel sad. Sad for a woman who wasted her life in bitter anger and expressed it through the mental and physical torture of children. Sad for the trail of devastation she left behind. Sad for the family members she hurt and betrayed. Sad that despite these things, people will mourn her passing. There will be tears at her funeral. There will be stories of the good things she did, things I never experienced. Now, here we go. I am conflicted further when I think about my own family today, almost three decades after she beat me for the last time. My wife of 17 years lies next to me soundly sleeping. My girls, 12 and 13, are in their rooms. Because of my childhood, they have never known violence in our home. They have never experienced cigarette burns on their arms. Because of my nightmares, they have never spent endless lonely nights in locked pantries without food and clothing. Because of my shame, they have never known the horrors of being stripped and mocked in front of drunken strangers. Because of my scars, they have never known hunger so deep that they've been forced to eat their own feces. Because of my upbringing, they've never been beaten with poles and sticks. Because of my childhood, they've never been un knocked unconscious for failing to wash a dish properly. Because of her, they've never known the horrors of deeply psychological and traumatic abuse. Of course, they've never known these things primarily because I know Jesus. I know the bittersweet truth of Genesis in my own life. And what Joseph said to his brothers is true of me. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Last paragraph. I am conflicted because I realize my own family is peaceably unmolested because of God's goodness in my life and perversely her evil in it too. God has used her evil for the good of my family. The thought that my pain has been used for good comforts me as I grapple with why these things were permitted to happen to me. Now, 
Let's analyze this for a minute. This guy was neglected, obviously. He was abandoned. This woman did unbelievable horror to this boy. When I was a young rookie pastor, it always astonished me that people would come in for counseling. I mean, I was 27, 28. And uh, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. But what was interesting after about a year of doing counseling, I began to figure something out. That a lot of times what people would come in with, they'd have their symptoms, but the symptoms really, the symptoms they were concerned about was on the, you know, their minds. The symptoms weren't the issue. There was something deeper. And I began to figure something out. About 90% of the time when people would come in with issues, about 90% of the time, and you, I had to learn that with these counseling deals, you got to work them like you used to work fractions in grade school. Remember you'd work a fraction, but some fractions you got to reduce a fraction before you can work it? And you got to reduce it to its lowest common denominator? So I'd listen to these people, and while I'm listening to them, I'm trying to reduce this thing down. What's the, what's the bottom line? What's the lowest common denominator? And about 90% of the time, the issue really, when you got right down to it, was that the man in that home was not being the man. Not always, but close to 90%. This woman, huge issue in his life. That's really not the issue. The issue was the father abandoned his kids to someone like this. He neglected. He knew what she was like. Had to. And he left his kids to someone like this. Now, I don't know your story. You don't know mine. But see, here's the grace of God. And this guy testifies to it. This guy can walk into any project, to any scheme in Scotland, the worst of situations, listens to people's story, and they can say to him, there's no way you can understand, and there is a way he can understand. And the comfort which he has received from Christ, he can then pass on that same comfort to them. You see, God uses our suffering. God brings good out of our suffering. His little girls are safe and protected. I saw something else yesterday, a picture on his website of him baptizing his 13-year-old girl. And then he put a little thing in there when my, when my daughter gave her testimony, and she said, I have been raised in a Christian home. It just about locked him up. He could hardly talk. You see, that meant so much to him because of all that that represented, all the safety, the protection, the care, the love. Yeah. So fathers are to treat their children fairly. Oh, can we, that, that, that was the first one. But can we say this before we go to two? Uh, kids have a different view of fairness than their parents do. Right? Well, that's not fear. That's not fear. That's not fear. Yeah. We're talking about, we're talking about treating kids with justice. God is just. God is good. Um, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about taking the truth of Christ and the scriptures and who Christ is, and as he works in our lives, and we are raising our kids with fairness, with justice. Okay, and when you screw up, you go make it right. Quickly. Quickly. 
Uh, second thing. Fathers are to raise their children tenderly. Tenderly. Um, the phrase in verse 4 where it says, but bring them up. And then it says in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The phrase, the word bring them up really has the sense of to nourish or to feed. Um, there's something great about seeing a man with his little dependent infant, little baby boy or little baby girl. And uh, feeding that little baby with a bottle. Those little infants are utterly dependent. And I think, I think a man is never more masculine than when he is tenderly nourishing those little ones. They're safe, they're secure. Uh, maybe the temperature's not quite right on the milk, but you're not a woman. I mean, you know. But don't forget to check that temp, man. I had to remind myself of that the other day because I was a little out of practice on the bottle. Uh, that's a godly thing. There's to be an aspect of tenderness that um, that we express that we express to our sons and that we express to our daughters. I think a lot of times we think of tenderness for our daughters, but your boys need it too. I remember playing little league. I was a catcher. I was probably nine years old. And, uh, you know, we got a couple guys on base, and, some, and the batter hits a base hit, you know, to right field. And so this kid on second, he's coming around, he's going to score. So I throw off my mask, and I'm waiting for this throw, and I'm going to crock this kid, and I'm going to block the plate. And just as he's coming around, somebody, the, the bat was, you know, someone comes along, and the bat boy, I don't know who it was, someone grabs the bat and throws it and hits me right in the face, and I don't have a mask on. And I went down, almost knocked me out. And here's what I remember. The first guy up to me was one of the coaches. And the first thing he said to me was, don't cry. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Don't cry. I mean, in hindsight, what I should have said is, well, let me hit you in the face with this bat and see you not cry. The second guy in was my dad. Uh, my, 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 my dad was a pretty darn good athlete. He, I, never, I mean, I never knew it because he never told us stuff. But then I found his high school yearbook in my grandma's garage and uh, saw the two you know, state championships and all state and two sports. And then he went on. Anyway, pretty good ball player. But, um, he never put that on us that we, you know, anyway. My dad comes in, kind of, somehow that other guy was gone. And my dad wasn't an idiot. My dad didn't say don't cry. He didn't say that. He just was real careful with me. And he, uh, 
He just checked me out. He said, just stay there, Steve. Are you okay? And he was very tender with me. Why? Because that's what was needed. Very tender. Very nurturing. He didn't say, all right, you know, come on. Put that eyeball back in your socket. Come on, let's go. <laughs> Uh, he did the appropriate thing. It was what I needed at the time. You see? Um, there are times your sons are going to need tenderness. I remember one of my sons sitting in a chair and uh, watching a basketball game and senior in high school. And he... Uh, I looked over and he's, uh, he's weeping. He's just weeping. He has just tears going down his cheeks. And uh, now what's interesting is that I've been praying for him for probably two months because I knew there was something going on in his life, but I didn't know what it was. I knew there was something really, really wrong. And I started just praying that God would work in his heart so that he would tell me what was going on. I knew he was hiding something from me. And we just had dinner, and we were sitting in there and watching some playoff game, and Mary comes in, and I look over, and he's sitting in that red chair, and he's just crying. And I said, what's going on, John? And he did that. He couldn't even talk. So I walked over and I knelt beside him on the chair. And I said, so John, what's going on in your heart? He said, I can't tell you. I said, okay. I said, so John, can I ask you some questions? So are you drinking? And I've got his permission to tell this story. I said, are you doing any drugs? I said, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Are you doing this? So what did he need right then? You weep with those who weep. And I started weeping. He said, Dad, I don't know how to get out of this. I said, yeah, you know what, John, I don't either. But I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this together. And he'll get us through it. He didn't mean, need me to blast him. He didn't need me to ground him right then. It, it was tender. It was so tender. Jesus is tender with me. He's tender with you. And then we have our daughters. Um, wives need tenderness. Our daughters need tenderness. 
I, I, I've said this before in here. Uh, guys with daughters have asked me, uh, I see verses on how to raise sons. I don't see verses on how to raise daughters. And my response is, what I did, I take the verses that tell me how to treat my wife and I apply those to my daughter. She'll probably grow up to be a wife. But she's a woman. She's a little young female. So the way I should treat my wife, I should treat my daughter. Just take those verses. Um, there's a woman named uh, Patricia Cornwell. You may have heard of her. She writes uh, mysteries and uh, forensic investigation novels and all this stuff. Uh, years ago, I read an article. I was on a plane, and, and my Whatever I had lost power, so I, there was a copy of New York Times, I pick it up, and there's a story in there about her life. And uh, she's had one heck of a life. She sold over 100 million books. Uh, I've had over 100 million books returned that, that, that I've written. But um, she's quite a prolific author. Has made unbelievable money. but. Um, by her own admission, the article said uh, her life has been a mess. After her father abandoned the family when she was five, her mother placed the children in a foster home and then checked herself into a mental hospital. As a teenager, she suffered from anorexia. In college, she became infatuated with a professor whom she married when she graduated. She has suffered severe moon swings most of her adult life, being hooked on alcohol for more years than not. Uh, recently survived a car accident that occurred after she drank an entire pitcher of Bloody Marys. She was cut from the wreckage with the jaws of life. In addition to all of this, the husband of her new lesbian lover tried to murder his former wife when he learned of their affair. Um, but when I read that article, everything seemed to point back to Christmas Day when she was five years old. Because what happened? Well, that was when her dad left the family. And here's what she said. I was at that age when little girls worshiped their daddies, and it absolutely killed me. I remember him coming out into the hallway. I knew immediately what he was doing. He was never coming back. I ran over crying and screaming and wrapped around one of his legs like a little tree frog, and I was screaming, don't go, don't go. And he kind of put me off. He didn't say anything. He just went out the door. I used to walk to the post office on holidays on my birthday several times a day, hoping for mail or gifts, but nothing ever came. Ever. Ever. See, when you talk to women like this, you can kind of understand why they would not be in a heterosexual relationship. This guy killed her. How would she ever trust a man again? And he was some big-time judge, but fell in love with secretary. You know the drill. You know the story. Uh, article put out by the Family Research Council called Daddy's Girl, How Fatherlessness Impacts Early Sexual Activity, Teen Pregnancy, and Sexual Abuse. Um, in the middle of this, they quote the comedian Stephen, is it Colbert? Is that how you pronounce it? I've never watched this guy, but anyway. Uh, a 
As comedian Stephen Colbert has, has observed, America used to live by the model, father knows best. Now we're lucky a father knows he has children. That's pretty insightful. We become a nation of sperm donors and baby daddies. Yet fathers are essential to the well-being of their daughters. Fathers have a direct impact on the well-being of their children. Girls with involved, respectful fathers see how they should expect men to treat them and are less likely to become involved in violent or unhealthy relationships. That's true. Because they, if, if a girl, and this is why Ms. McConnell's little girls are so fortunate because they got a daddy who loves Jesus and loves their mommy. You see? And if your little girl has that, or your granddaughter, they know what a man looks like. And they know how a man should treat them. What happens when you have a daughter? Uh, subconsciously, she takes the template of her father's life and she puts it out in front of her when young men start to come into her life. And if a young man is uh, critical, cutting her down, all that, he should bounce off of the template of your example. If he tries to take advantage of her sexually, he bounces off the template of your example. And when you find out about it, you put a contract out on him. <laughs> little humor there in the midst of something very heavy. But you'll deal with it. You say, really? Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Why would you get passive on something like that? She needs to know that she has a protector. And you'll do it appropriately, but you'll handle something. They go on and say in this article, children who live in father-absent homes often face higher risk of physical abuse, sexual abuse, and neglect from children who live with their fathers. Think Ms. McConnell. Think uh, Patricia Cornwell. According to a 2003 study of 700 girls, girls, who left, girls whose fathers left the family earlier in their lives had the highest rates of both early sexual activity and adolescent pregnancy, followed by those whose fathers left at a later age. Makes sense. Once again, guys, we're on holy ground here. This is holy ground. These relationships with these kids. And, and you know, perhaps some of you are saying, man, Steve, I checked out. We've had guys come to this study. I know them personally. I knew them before, before they, before they checked out, and now they come to Bible study, and I know them now, and I've seen relationships repaired, but checked out for 10, 12 years. And then the Lord got a hold of them. And then what began to happen? They began to repair the damage that had been done. And they begin the process of rebuilding trust with children they have hurt. They, they hurt and they harmed. And did it happen overnight in the Christian microwave? Oh, no. No, no, no. It takes years. 
but they just keep following Christ and taking the next step. It's marvelous to see families healed. This is what Jesus does. You know, the end of the Old Testament is, uh, the last book in the Old Testament is uh, the prophet, the Italian prophet, Malachi. <clears throat> Some would call him Malachi. But the last verse in the Old Testament, and then God's silent for 400 years, the last verse in the Old Testament says, and he, when he comes, will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. God loves to restore families. He loves to, to restore uh, fathers and sons and fathers and daughters. He loves to do it. Third. Third landmark. Fathers should raise their children firmly. Firmly. It says in um, Ephesians 6.4, again, fathers, do not provoke your children in anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So you got two things there, discipline and instruction. Discipline is what is done to a child. Uh, instruction is what is said to a child. So discipline and instruction should always go together. Because once again, you're not doing this out of rage, and you're not doing this out of anger. See, you're, this is why you go back to Ephesians 5.15. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise. We, we, we've all disciplined when we haven't been under control. We've all made that mistake. But be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Yeah. Um, so discipline is what you do to a child. Book of Proverbs talks a lot about how to discipline a child. You know, you want to read this book and read this book and this book, go read Proverbs. It's inspired by God. It's the mind of Christ. Just read it. Write out those verses. Discipline your son while there is hope. And do not desire his death. This is serious stuff. Well, I read this psychologist and I read this psychologist. Okay. That's fine. But who are they and what do they believe and what do they know? Well, they went to school here, here, and here. So, what does that mean? Well, to me, it means they're a bunch of followers. Because if they're tenured at a secular university, these days, they're pretty much a follower. There are exceptions, but there aren't many anymore. Because you just stand in line, and it's like, I mean, you, you stand in line, and you better believe, and you better wear the right uniform and say the right stuff, and it's just, I mean... It's not education, it's propaganda. And you're telling me you're listening to them? The foolishness of God is superior to the wisdom of men. So read Proverbs. Read Dare to Discipline by James Dobson. That book is drenched in scripture and practical common sense. 
It's as good today as the day it was written. Yeah. Uh, discipline is what is done to a child, and the Bible gives parameters. Um, instruction is what is said to the child. So my dad, he used to say, I'd, I had done something wrong, and he'd say, Steve, come here. And then he'd go like this. <laughs> and he didn't have metal on his belt like I do. It was just an old belt. And he'd say, Steve, come here. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I know you're sorry. He's very calm. I'm really sorry, Daddy. Yeah, I know. He said, Come here. And he said, did we not talk about this? Yeah, yeah. And did I not? And he'd go over it with me. He would instruct me. Did we not talk? And I'm 19 years old. This is embarrassing. <laughs> but this, this is what my dad would do. He'd talk to me. And he'd have that belt in his hand. And then, I'm, and then he'd go over it again, and he said, all right. And then he'd turn me, and he'd kind of hold me by the arm, and then he'd give me a couple swats on the butt. He didn't abuse me. I didn't have welts. I didn't bleed. My dad loved me. My dad had died for me. But he had to discipline me. I've said this before. I feared my dad. My, I, I loved my dad. But I feared him. My dad meant what he said. And he was not vicious. He was not a tyrant. I respected the heck out of my dad. I feared him. He, I, 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 I didn't get involved in a lot. I didn't get involved in much trouble in high school. Only because of my dad. I've had friends in high school, I had friends laugh at me because I wouldn't go do stuff with them. You can laugh all you want. You don't have the dad I've got. I'd tell him. i said, I'm going home. He said, be home at 11. I'm going home. Saved me a lot of stuff. Saved me from being arrested. Saved me from this and that. I am thankful for a dad who loved me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of Jim is the beginning of wisdom. It's uh, discipline and it's instruction. Um, see if I can find good old Kent Hughes here. Kent makes a point. I'll just summarize it. If you look at 1 Samuel, uh, there's a man named Eli who was the high priest. He had two sons that were also priest, but they were utterly corrupt, and they would take the sacrifices and the offerings, and they would use them for themselves, and there's probably a sense that they probably even violated some women that were coming to worship. T turn over there real quick, if you would. I want to show you something. Let's just go to chapter 1, verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. He heard that all his sons were doing in all Israel, how they lay with women who served at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. Uh, he said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my son's report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. Um, but apparently, all he did was talk. Because if you go down to 27, then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, 
Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Um, did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? Um, and did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? In other words, the priesthood, it was, it was holy before the Lord. 29, why do you kick it, my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling? Now watch this. And honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people, Israel. 34, there will be a sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. So, man, that's pretty tough. In chapter 3, when little Samuel, you know, who, who lived there with him, his mom Hannah would come up every year and see him, but you know that story. Uh, he's asleep and he hears the voice of God and uh, the little boy, I mean, he thought it was Eli calling him. He runs in and says to Eli, Eli said, I didn't call you. It happens again and uh, I didn't call my son. Verse 7, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. He's just a little guy, nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for a third time and he rose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Samuel went down and lay in his, little, in his bed. The Lord came and stood and called at other time, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord said, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. Disciplining children is serious. And if you don't do it, what you're doing is you're honoring your son where you're honoring your daughter above the Lord. I'm watching two situations right now where this is going on. One where the child is young and one where the child is an adult. And there's misery in both Christian homes. By the way, the word in Ephesians 6, 4, uh, for instruction, there's something called the Septuagint. It was the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. And where it said, Abraham, not Abraham, Eli did not rebuke his sons. It's the same Greek word that's in Ephesians 6, 4. It's the same word of instruction. He didn't instruct them. He didn't discipline them. Let's go to the fourth point. Fathers should raise their children in the Lord. In the Lord. Do you see in Ephesians 6, 4? And this is what you've got all the way through Ephesians in family relationships. But look at it, if you would. <clears throat> Fathers, do not provoke your children in anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
There you go. So see, that goes back. That goes back to Ephesians 5 and 15 and being filled with the Spirit. Uh, so how do you raise them in the Lord? Well, it's a father who has come to know the Lord, who's not drunk with wine, but who is filled with the Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, you're controlled by the Spirit. So when a man comes to know Christ, instead of being, you know, mastered by anything else, now I am controlled by the Lord. How does the Spirit of God control me? If you look earlier in Colossians 3, it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So what happens is, is that when I raise my kids in the Lord, I'm under the control of the Spirit, and I'm under the control of the Scriptures. And, you know, we're growing in this. We're learning this. Uh, and what this does is, it makes a tremendous difference in a family. It's making a huge difference in Ms. McConnell's family, and in a lot of families represented here, so I mentioned John Knox to you, and when the gospel came to Scotland under John Knox, and it started permeating through the countryside and through the highlands, and fathers began to be saved, and they began to lead their families, uh, it had an incredible impact on that nation. Uh, Douglas Wilson writes this, John Knox had a high view of the responsibilities of fathers. He wrote, the only way to leave our children blessed and happy is to leave them rightly instructed in God's true religion, the Bible. And therefore, God straightly commands the fathers to teach their sons the laws and the ceremonies and the rites of the Scriptures. Then God would that the life and conversation of the fathers should be a schoolmaster for the children. Uh, every family is a small civilization. Every family is a small church. The husband-father is the, uh, you're not only the schoolmaster, you're, you're, the, you're the pastor. And grandpa, you're, you're, you're the pastor emeritus. You see? And those guys are really good to have around. You see? Because sometimes when the kids are upset with their daddy, you can kind of circle around with them. You know? And maybe they'll talk to you a little bit. Kind of a good cop, bad cop thing sometimes. But you do what you got to do. But you both want the same thing. You want to grow that little boy, little girl up. Yeah. In his discussion of family worship, Knox delivered a solemn charge to the men of Scotland. Uh, My brethren, you are ordained of God to rule your own houses in the fear of the Lord. And according to his word, according to his word, Within your houses, I say in some cases, you are the bishops and you are the kings. Your wife, children, servants, family, they're your congregation and charges. Uh, we don't use those terms now, but you get what he's saying. And that spread throughout Scotland. Then you read this book, I'm almost done. You read this book, How the Scots Invented the Modern World, by Arthur Herman. I'll tell you something, this guy doesn't like John Knox. He didn't like him at all. He didn't like what John Knox taught. He didn't like the gospel. He didn't like the Bible. But he grudgingly has to give him credit. Because when he starts out this book and all that, it's how the Scots invented the modern world. And it's quite a book. He starts it with John Knox, who he really doesn't like. And... One of the things that he mentions 
is that as a result of Knox, even after Knox's death, but Knox's teaching, the Scottish Parliament passed its act for setting schools, establishing a school in every parish in Scotland not already equipped with one. And they had to set up a school and there had to be a teacher, there had to be a headmaster. And then he says this, the reason behind all this was obvious to any Presbyterian, boys and girls must know how to read the Holy Scriptures. Their daddies taught it to them and modeled it, but they wanted to make sure that was in every little village. That school was about them learning to read so they would know the Word of God. And what happened is that Scotland, for generations, had the highest literacy rate in the entire world. And those Scottish kids knew the Word of God. You know what church is? The church is uh, comprised of families, even single folks. You say, I'm single. Yeah, well, you're in a family. You go somewhere on Christmas. You're not by yourself. Uh, we have a pastor, but in the family, you're the pastor. And we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And we're to love our kids. And uh, we're to fight off distance. And we're to fight off distractions. And if we call on his name, he'll help us do it. You should not walk out of here. If you, here's what I want to say to you. Every guy in this room, whenever I talk about fathering, every guy in the room, including myself, on the way home, thinks of all the ways you screwed up. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward to the high calling in Jesus Christ. What happens is we've all screwed up. And you can get so tied up driving home and, man, I missed those years or I did this or I got so caught in bit. I screwed up. I screwed up big time when my kids got in the first part of high school and junior high school because I got so busy with all this ministry stuff that was exploding. And I was teaching this stuff. I got ambushed. So I can drive home and I can get all tied up in knots and regret. But you see, forgetting what lies behind. There's not a thing I can do about that. But you know what? I got tonight and I got tomorrow. So Jesus, show me what steps to take tomorrow. Maybe you need to just call your son and have lunch with him. Or get with your daughter. Or just call her. Or just check in. I don't know. I don't know. But ask him. Just ask him. Just ask him. You're following the shepherd. And just step by step, day by day. What did Malachi say? And he, when he comes, will restore the heart to the fathers, to the children, and the children to the fathers. Lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Because of Jesus, that curse is removed. So we've got great hope. Father, we thank you that you're the perfect father. The rest of us are deeply flawed. We're at different places in life, uh, different um, 
chapters of life. But for those of us that are fathers, those of us with, with uh, girls and boys at home, those of us with grand, uh, who are grandfathers, with, we're not with them perhaps every day. Some are because they're raising their grandchildren. But most of us, it's not every day. But when we're with them, help us to be mindful of the absolute high calling that we have in their lives. Make us quick to confess our sin in this area. Make us quick to ask forgiveness in the family when we have done wrong. Because we don't want wounds to foul and fester and get infected because of our pride. Heal the wounds of our families. Heal our sin. And as we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That applies to our home. In Jesus' name we pray.